Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. Our seminar series, which gives you the opportunity to take a listen back to some of our best seminars and conferences and the presentations that were made. We have our 10-minute lesson series, which is a very brief overview of some policy topics, just touching on the areas that we think people need to know. And then there is our interview series, and today is one of those. In this episode, I'm speaking to Ken Fox. Ken is a writer, a researcher, and a trainer. He's also a journalist and has had his articles published in Noteworthy, among other publications. He's one of the directors of Right to Know, an Irish transparency organisation that campaigns for greater information access. And he is one of the experts on what we're going to be talking about today, freedom of information. I hope you enjoy it. So, Ken, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thanks a million for taking the time. You're welcome. Uh, So cracking straight into it, freedom of information. What is it? Why do we need it? Where did it come from? Well, I suppose uh, freedom of information has a fairly... A reasonably long history in Ireland at this stage. Uh, it was introduced back in the late 1990s. Um, at the time, there were uh, a lot of kind of ongoing controversies that had led to tribunals, particularly around planning corruption and payments to politicians. And I suppose one of the big things at those times was that these um, scandals, for want of a better word, it, it wasn't that people didn't know about them. It was it was widely known, for instance, that the, the late Taoiseach Charles Hawhey had wealth that he couldn't explain. And similarly, it was widely known that, corrupt, that planning in Dublin was systematically corrupt, that um, terrible decisions were being made, that money was changing hands, and that councillors, some of them, could be bought um, to, to give you... Uh, planning permission to change agricultural land to residential land or whatever, because the the sums of money involved were were vast. So there was this sense that while these things were going on, kind of in a sense in plain sight, you just couldn't get access to official records. And Ireland as as a republic and as a liberal democracy, when Ireland became independent, it adopted most of the UK legal systems, its civil service, and so on, pretty much wholesale. So we just basically kept all of those things because they worked up to a point, but they were they were more befitting of a country like the UK, which is not, um, it does not have our system of government, is not about kind of empowerment of the individual citizen like a republic should be. And so for that entire period, really from independence up until um, late the late 90s, the access to government documents and official records was really, really tightly controlled and was actually covered by the Official Secrets Act. And so the only people who could actually release records were um, were ministers. And so it was just, it was really hard to get information. And I became a journalist kind of around that period of time. And I saw the tail end of it, you know, where you would deal with public bodies, where it was almost impossible to, to get an answer. And I suppose that's to give a sense of where FY came from. Um, there was a, a coalition government at the time with Labour in it and very much pushed by um, the former Labour minister, Ethna Fitzgerald. There was a lot of talk about 
the letting in the light was kind of the slogan of the time. And the Taoiseach, John Bruton, he talked about government working as if it was behind a pane of glass. And this idea then that um, all records effectively were public because they were being created by public bodies with public funds on behalf of the public. So you make this assumption that everything is public. And that's kind of the spirit of FOI, and that's the, the thinking behind FOI. Um, it's obviously much more complicated than that. And I suppose it would be very important to say that FOI and its kind of sister system for accessing environmental information, which is called AIE, they're not a panacea for you to get every record that you want, but they do provide access to an awful lot of um, records. And they give you the framework a very kind of strong framework to force public bodies to give you information that you're looking for. And there's an appeal process within it. And obviously, um, if you have the funds, you can take these cases to the high court to force disclosure of records that public bodies sometimes should be publishing anyway. And I suppose it's also important to keep in mind when we look at the history of FOI, that when FOI was introduced in 1998, you know, it would have been, society would have still been, certainly government would have been largely a paper-based um, system, you know, and, and where the web and email and stuff were only really coming into, um, they, they'd obviously been in use in certain in certain areas before, for, for a good few years before that. But that ability to publish information, to make it available to people online and so on, that has developed so much over the, the, the past 20 years. And you refer to, you know, public information, because as you say, it's being created by, by public servants, whether they're elected representatives or they're part of the public sector, the civil, the civil sector. Um, and it's, there, it's funded by public money. Does that mean that literally everything that government does from, you know, minister all the way down to, you know, the, the, the assistant secretary and, and beyond, is that all publicly available? We can ask for literally anything. It's all um, technically available. So whether you'll get access to records, I suppose the, one of the defining features of, of freedom of information in Ireland is are what are known as the exemptions. So we might talk about those in more detail later, but those are all the reasons a public body can use to decline access to records. But technically, everything that a public body does from top to bottom, uh, be it staff members or, as you say, elected representatives is subject to FOI. Uh, there are there are lots and lots of restrictions and exemptions, and you could talk about them for days upon days. But I suppose it's that idea that everything a public body does, everything um, it every record it creates is potentially subject to FOI and can be requested. Um, and I suppose it's important too to make the distinction here that it is only public bodies, and um, it's not organisations that even though they might be entirely dependent on state funding and so on but so organizations in in the charitable sector in the healthcare sector even though there could be 100% or 80% reliant on state funds they're they're not going to be subject to FOI so it's those public bodies and you mention records and that that's kind of a, an important definition within the legislation around what constitutes a record and and how it might be held and what way you need to ask for it um you know I suppose 
what are the things that you can't ask for that you fundamentally just that are, as you say, exempt from the legislation? So it's because there, there's actually kind of, a, as you kind of mentioned there, there's a little bit of a misnomer in the term freedom of information, because that suggests that it's about information. But actually, FOI in Ireland is about records. So it's about records that already exist. So in practice, that means people can't just ask a question. So oftentimes you have to try and predict what record will answer your question. So I suppose that's the first important thing to say. Um, so you can then request anything. There's no you can you can request anything, whether you get it or not, becomes the big question. I suppose there are I think 13 or 14 different sections of the Act of the Freedom of Information Act that deal with the exemptions, and it's some of the the most common ones that you would come up against would be um, exemptions around personal information. So, for instance, lots of us have interactions with public bodies, be it through, be it for healthcare, be it for social welfare, be it for education, and all of that information relating to us, that's exempt under FOI. It's our information. We can get it, but other people can't get it. The information relating to kind of the personal circumstances of a civil servant. So what overtime he gets when he takes his holidays or his sick leave or disciplinary issues, that's personal information. So it it tends to be the things people do in their day-to-day jobs, except that there's this big, huge carve-out for for personal information. So that would be probably the biggest one. There would be exemptions around commercial sensitivity. So a public body can say this information is commercially sensitive, so we're not going to release it. So if they were in the middle of a tender process and they're looking for somebody to build a road for them and there's five companies going to bid for that, obviously you can't release information about that process during it because company X can then come in and undercut company Y if, if information was coming out about that. But it doesn't, it doesn't for instance, stop you getting access to money that a a public body has already spent. And so there's an obligation on every public body in Ireland, for instance, to publish details of all money they spent over €20,000 every three months. So it's designed to protect things. You know, if, if information got out, the process would be compromised or ruined or damaged that's the type of protections that are built into it similarly there's an exemption around kind of a deliberative process so when a public body is making a big decision during that period that they're making the big decision you're not going to be able to access records relating to what they're thinking what the minister is thinking or whatever that might be because if that information came into the public domain then the department might start getting lobbied by such and such a body and such and such a body, and that could influence the decision. So there, as I said, there, there, the exemptions are too numerous to go through them. There are other ones around kind of legal professional privilege. There are ones around kind of material that might have security implications or diplomatic implications. Um, but I suppose those, those would be kind of the three key ones when people make a request, they're going to run into our personal information, um, commercial sensitivity and records around either a deliberative process or kind of internal management um, functions within a public body. So those are the most common ones. 
And I mean, they sound perfectly reasonable when you explain in terms of personal information as a human being, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to be exempt. And same, you know, in terms of things under deliberation or in terms of the commercially sensitive. When we start looking at, you know, some of the the things that have hit the headlines around, you know, what had previously been allowed out. So, for example, pensions information and now that's that's kind of locked up there are slightly skewed ways of using it same with the gdpr i mean certainly everything seemed to come under gdpr at one point where nothing could be released uh have you ever encountered that kind of blockage where you've had to to go back and say well actually you you can let us have it or have access to it yeah every day so so there's the there's the kind of the framework of the FOI exemptions that I've just kind of explained that, you know, each of the exemptions, there's a good reason for them. And there are records that need to be withheld for those reasons. But the problem is that public bodies misuse the exemptions all the time and they just disregard decisions that have already been made. They disregard kind of the entire history of FOI that tells them this is not exempt, but they'll still make um, incorrect decisions on it. Um, the, the greatest weakness in FOI is the is kind of the, the absence of any precedent. So in when we talk about law generally, if a decision is made in 1998, then everybody going forward for the next 25 years abides by that decision. But in FOI, a decision is made in 1998 that says this is not commercially sensitive. But 25 years later, a public body is still making those same faulty, flawed, incorrect decisions. And there's no sanction or mechanism within the legislation to stop them doing that. And in a, in a sense, there's actually a perverse reward for a public body being uncooperative. Because if you're really uncooperative, then people just stop making requests. And I suppose one of the aspects of, of freedom of information that's kind of important is that there's an appeal process within FOI and the appeal process generally goes to the information commissioner who's kind of the overseer of FOI in Ireland. And through the history of FOI, we've had different people in that role as information commissioner. And some of them have taken a really proactive, pro-transparency kind of advocate approach. And then more laterally, the person has taken very much a kind of a neutral referee. I'm impartial. I have the public body on one side. I have the requester on the other side. And I have to be seen as kind of independent of both. And unfortunately, that leaves a massive weakness where you have public bodies on one side with access to public funds, with access to legal advice, with access to outside legal advice, with multiple staff and so on, and, and budgets. And on the other side, you have the citizen and nobody stands up for the citizen. And I suppose that is um, one of the core problems for with FOI for me is that there is no oversight really of it. Um, you have a, a government department, Department of Public Expenditure, that have they're in the middle of, of an FOI review at the moment. And one of the first things they're looking at is how much FOI costs, which gives you a sense of how they feel about it. And then you have the information commissioner taking a very kind of impartial I don't get involved. I just kind of referee it approach. And it just leaves this big gaping void that to an extent 
I and the organization that I'm involved in, Right to Know, we try and fill by advocating for transparency, but we do so without any budget and entirely, almost entirely on a voluntary um, basis. And, and yeah, there's just, a donations mechanism, isn't there? Like you, you yeah, so we, we take donations and we use the donations to basically take appeals and take legal cases um, to kind of expand people's ability to access information and to kind of take on these faulty decisions. Because I suppose, like I said, there is an appeal process in FOI. So every time you make an FOI request, at the first stage, it's free. But if you want to appeal it, um, there's two steps. The first step is an internal review, and that's the same public body again. That costs €30. Euro. And then the next step is information commissioner, and that costs €50. Euro. So for a lot of people, €80 euro is, is a big impediment, particularly if they're just a member of the public or if they're a freelance journalist or if they're a journalist with local media, say. It's maybe a little bit more affordable for members of kind of the national media. But even still, um, the number of cases that get appealed is, is, is extremely small if you were to actually compare it to the, uh, the volume of poor decisions that are being made. So most bad decisions never get appealed. People just drop them. And it's it's something that is about, you know, FOI that's quite distinct from the likes of GDPR that got a huge amount of, of publicity in and around uh, 2018, notwithstanding the fact that it didn't really change much since the 1988 Act. Um, the, that perception that, it, you know, it's actually not just about your data, that you as an individual have a right to ask about any data that you don't have to have a special interest in it, which is why it's it's so useful when used properly for journalists, um, because you can ask questions and not have to be personally involved in, in the processes of it. Yeah, and it gives you a kind of a, you know, it puts it puts you like, I know while, I'm, while I am spelling out a lot of the weaknesses of it, it does put you in a kind of a strong position in one sense, particularly if you're willing to follow through. Because the, the FOI Act is there, is there, and it's a piece of legislation. So it's not something that they can kind of, they can try and fob it off. But ultimately, if you're willing to go the distance, you can force them either uh, force disclosure of the records. Or if you're wrong, obviously, you can't get the records. And that happens sometimes. And, and that's, that's okay. I mean, not every FOI request should be should result in release of all records, because as we said, lots of them are exempt. But it does give you this very strong framework, as I said, if you're willing to follow through to force people to disclose information. Um, and I suppose from the perspective of, uh, as well, of, of your listeners, it's important to say as well that uh, separate to FOI, there is this other mechanism, which is particularly important to the PPN networks around access to environmental information. Um, so you can also seek environmental information under the, a system that's called AIE. And if people want to kind of know the baby steps of making requests, I've published an FOI guide on my website. It's um, just at kenfox.com, F-O-X-E, so kenfoxe.com. And it's kind of a beginner's guide to making requests under FOI and under AIE. And it'll, it'll help you get started. And um, both of them are really complex. You know, 
you know, people have written very long legal textbooks about them. But at the same time, you don't necessarily, while it's helpful to have, the more knowledge you have, the, the better you're going to be at requesting information. At the same time, you can make requests for information with no knowledge at all. And it's literally just a case of finding the email address and saying, under the FOI Act, I want a copy of these records. Or under the AIE regulations, I want a copy. I, I want this environmental information. And that's all there is to it. It should take you, if you have something in mind, you know, it's, it's a process that should be taking you kind of uh, five minutes or something like that at most. Yeah. I've seen on Twitter, all right, that you have, you know, every, every now and again, you sporadically come up with, don't forget this thing exists, this guide exists, and it is literally an email. It's very simply worded. Um, so that if people were really concerned about, you know, you're engaging in a legal process and it has to be quite formal, that that's not necessarily the case. That really, when you do the steps of the process, it, they're they're relatively simple or they can be relatively simple. I know certainly pre-2014, you know, if I did some FOI requests in relation to some of the work that I was doing, um, we'd get, well, no, that's not in the right format. Or, you know, you, you haven't specified the records. You have to give me a list of every record that you want. And as you say, sometimes you don't actually know what the record is. You know kind of vaguely the area or that there was a discussion or a meeting held and you're looking for minutes, but it could have been a note instead. Uh, yeah. Does that kind of thing still go on? Or is it is the process still as, as you have it now? Send well, in e an email and kind of follow the steps. Yeah, I suppose over the, over the period that we've had FOI, we've had different versions of the legislation. And the one that we work with now is the 2014 Act. And so it's important to say that back in 2004, there was a fairly wholesale kind of gutting of the legislation by the Fianna Fáil government at the time. And one of the big, big things they did was they introduced a fee so that every FOI request you made cost you 15 euro. And Basically, the number of FOI requests dropped in half overnight. But other kind of the, the 2014 Act, it got rid of the upfront fee again. But it also, uh, to me, it's a more user friendly version. I'm not sure this is people, again, like everything with uh, FOI, there's what it says in the, on the, the printed page. And then there's the reality of actually doing it on a, on a day to day basis. But it's very strong on the public body providing you reasonable assistance to get what you're looking for. So oftentimes uh, under the old FOI Act, I used to, um, I used to, if you made requests for a huge amount of material, that was a, a really big problem because they would come and try and charge you a lot of money for it. But under the 2014 Act, there's kind of a, a mechanism built into it that kind of, um, it it makes it beneficial for both the requester and the public body to kind of come to a bit of an agreement about what records will be released. So you can go in and say, I want all records relating to such and such an issue. And the public body will come back and say, well, if you were to look for all those records, that would be thousands upon thousands and thousands of pages. So you can then engage in a discussion with them. Well, how do I make that request a little bit smaller? Could I confine it to a three-month period? Could I just have an individual um, email account searched? Could I just look for 
high-level documents that went to the minister or the chief executive or who it happens to be. And as I said, under the under the 2014 Act, they're supposed to provide you reasonable assistance in doing this. Um, and again, that 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 is something that's really important because, like I said, there's with FY, you have on one hand, you have the public body that has the records, that understands how it works, that knows all the members of staff who deal with such and such an issues, who know the structure of the organization. And then on the other hand, you have the requester who doesn't know any of that. They don't know who made, you know, for high level stuff, maybe they'll know the minister made the decision, but for other things, you know, particularly say with a local authority, they don't know the names of the officials. They don't know the business units that operate and how things are structured and how decisions are made or how communication takes place. So it kind of puts an onus on the public body to explain those things and that and that's that that's the way it should be and the best public bodies what they'll do is like i'm thinking of people like the court service or leitrim county council for instance and if you make a request to them they oftentimes they'll just pick up the phone and they'll say okay what you're looking for here is a little bit it's a little bit vague but i think if you made a request and you've worded it in exactly this way, I think you will get what you're looking for. And if you word it in this way and we send you records and it's not what you're looking for, then you can submit another request. And that's that's the best practice scenario. And obviously, unfortunately, the best practice scenario is not that common. And poor practices are, are much more common where public bodies are deeply, deeply unhelpful. Um, won't provide such information, um, won't help people make bad decisions, um, don't give reasons for why they're making decisions and so on. And I suppose when you're dealing with a public body that doesn't want to do its job, you have to kind of be willing to, to go into battle with them, you know. And one of the only ways we have of forcing public bodies who engage in poor practice to do better is by saying, okay, I'm going to take these people on. I'm going to make a lot of requests and I'm going to appeal every single one of them. And I would always say to people, especially journalists working in local media who deal with a, a, a local authority who are very, very difficult, it, it pays them to be difficult. If, if they don't want to do the work, the best thing from their perspective that has worked up until now is give no information out, never give any information out, refuse everything. So that means you don't have to do the searches, you don't have to do the paperwork and so on. And, and what happens is people just stop making requests. So like I said, there's kind of a perverse reward for, for doing FOI really badly. So the only measure, only mechanism we have is to, to bury them in paperwork. Because if you appeal the cases, then all of a sudden, there's a lot of work because they're dealing with the information commissioner, they're dealing with submissions, they're dealing with their legal department, they're dealing with their boss. And that can have the effect of making them think, well, actually, maybe I should have just done it properly in the beginning because it would have been less work. And that's, the, as I said, that is the only route open to us to force public bodies to do better because the information commissioner won't um, take that responsibility. They're almost like an independent arbiter now as opposed to an advocate, as you say. Yeah, um, and they, they don't take action against public bodies that um, 
that don't do what they're supposed to do. They, they say, they mention it in their annual report every year, but they don't do anything about it. And all those public bodies have been performing poorly for 20 years and nothing has really changed. And after I, I send in my email, so say I'm talking to one of the good ones, I'm talking to the, the court service, what is the length of time I can expect to be waiting for my, my information, for my records to come back to me? So for every um, request that you make, uh, effectively, they have a 20, 20 working days. So it's really a calendar month. So if you made a request on the 1st of April, you can expect your response on the 1st of May. I suppose the only exception to that would be around Christmas time, New Year, when there's a, a load of public holidays and so on. That kind of extends it out to about five weeks. And then... If you're looking for a particularly large number of records or if there are particularly large number of requests for the same set of records all at one time, then they can extend it for another four weeks. So it would be an eight week process. So you can imagine if they have a huge amount of records to trawl through, that can take a bit longer. And then the second scenario is when there's it's kind of like if there's a big controversy, like, for example, the controversy over Catherine Zappone's appointment by the Department of Foreign Affairs. And within two weeks, the Department of Foreign Affairs, I think they received something like, I can't actually remember the number, but certainly it would have been 20, 20 or 30. I think it was a lot more than that, but I don't want to give a figure, an exaggerated <laughs> figure. And so they effectively get a little bit overwhelmed and all the requests are slightly different. So one person is looking for X and others looking for Y and the next is looking for Z. So th those are the scenarios in which you can seek an extension. And again, going back to poor practice, some public bodies, basically every request they get, they'll put an extension on it. Even if you're only looking for an email and they'll say, we want an extra four weeks, you can appeal these. But like I, I said, there is no sanction. There's no... Um, reprimand, there's no kind of fine system or anything to to stop them doing it, so they just keep doing it. And presumably there's a time frame for appeals as well. So there, there is. And one of the good things about, uh, from the perspective especially of citizens, is that if public bodies are bad at dealing with FY, one of the things that they often miss is they'll miss their deadlines. So it's just because poor practice tends to go hand in hand with other poor practice. And um, if you make a request, as I said, on the 1st of April and the due date for it is the 1st of May and they don't come back to you till the 10th of May, then you can seek internal review for free and you don't have to pay the 30 euro fee. And then for internal review, they only have three weeks. Again, a lot of, um, the bad public bodies, they'll, they'll tend to miss these deadlines because they're, they're just very, um, there's just poor practice kind of is embedded in that office. And if they miss the three-week deadline for the internal review, then it, you can seek appeal with the information commissioner again for free. They're called deemed refusals. So every year I would probably have 20 of these cases where the I didn't get either decision in time and it's gone to the information commissioner, but I haven't paid anything for it. Very good. And is there another, so say, you know, you didn't get satisfaction from the information commissioner. Are you going all the way to the high court? Um, 
With FOI, you can go to the high court. And sometimes your case is your case can end up in the high court, even though you haven't brought it there. So I have a case at the moment where the information commissioner ordered release of a client survey from the IDA, but the IDA have taken it to the high court so that you can end up in the high court. But for you or I or right to know or anybody to take an FOI case to the high court, you are exposed to all the costs that are associated with, with that, which is tens of thousands of euros. So we've never taken um, we've never taken an FOI case, but for that reason, because it, effectively one case could put an organisation like ours out of business. The counterpoint to that is that under access to information on the environment, under the AIE regulations, you can go to the High Court because it's part of the Our House Convention and because it it has the the protections built into it around access to environmental justice. So the EU is very strong on this, that when it comes to environmental justice, everybody should be able to to access it, not just people with deep pockets and organisations. Whereas with FOI, you leave yourself um, personally or organisationally exposed. And so the number of FOI cases that get taken to high court by requester is is negligible and in the in the instance that you don't bring it to the high court so the one you're talking about there at the ida you didn't bring it to the high court they brought it to the high court if they win is there any capacity for them to reclaim costs not from not from you not from the requester so the the court case really the at that point the court case is between the ida and the information commissioner you're only really an observer um in a sense. So you wouldn't even have, you wouldn't even necessarily have legal representation. Obviously, you could go and attend and hear what happens. And if the IDA won, um, could they seek costs from the information commissioner? I'm sure they could. Um, I doubt they would, um, unless unless it was shown that the decision was absolutely flawed. Um, and as uh, if what what could happen then is obviously it could end up in the Supreme Court as well if the information commissioner felt that a high court decision had absolutely decimated the applicability of the FOI Act. Um, but obviously those would be big steps. And and as a requester, you'd have no you'd have no involvement or influence over them. Yeah, I just I suppose I wanted to clarify that just because that the potential of that could be a barrier to someone even making the request in the first place. You know, if you have that threat, no, that you, you could, could be liable for, as you say, it's tens of thousands in the high court. Yeah, no, you would. You could never be liable. You could never be liable in that way. Because at the end of the day, all you did was made the FOI request. You know, you didn't make the decision. It's not your decision that's, that's being questioned. Um, are there any standout, I suppose you've been doing this for a long time and you do a lot of them every year. Are there any kind of standout cases, either on the, on the good side or the bad side, that you think there was something about that that was either unexpected or that, you know, you've kind of learned from? Um, there's kind of, there, there's one, maybe the, I'd start with the positive one, which would be the, when we, when Right to Know started, um, myself and uh, Gavin Sheridan and Fred Logue, especially those two more so than me, before Right to Know, they had really had a, a kind of a, a strong interest in access to information on the environment and the potential power of that. And really, I was only I only kind of 
I was much later to understanding how powerful it is. It's more, it is more powerful than FY, particularly where it relates to emissions into the environment. Um, and when, when we kind of started that work, the first case, the first big case they took was against NAMA, where NAMA basically said they didn't have to deal with these requests and they won that. And at the time, it felt like um, AIE was kind of, it was a bit of a brick wall that you were having to try and knock down with a sledgehammer. Whereas over the last two or three years, basically every AIE case, every environmental case we've taken, we've won. And there's been this kind of acceptance that the definition of environmental information is really, really, really wide. And also that all the public bodies that have to deal with it, that that definition is also really, really wide. I suppose I should say that the FOI Act actually exclude certain public bodies altogether. So things like um, the Irish Aviation Authority, all the various port companies, um, Irvia and Bus Aaron and Quilcha and so on, they're all exempt under FOI. So you literally can't send them a request under FOI, but they're all subject to AIE. And we've even been able to kind of extend the reach of AIE to bring in the operators of a motorway toll um, on the M1. We won another case. It is still subject to legal proceedings relating to a wind farm operation. That was a joint venture between Quilcha and ESB networks. It's effectively set up as a company. And one of the things we hear a lot about around the country is local authorities setting up these spin-off companies, kind of designated activity companies. And one of the reasons they do it is to put them beyond FOI. But the great thing with AIE is it doesn't put some beyond AIE. And a lot of what they do is environmental because it's around development of urban areas, regeneration, could be to do with energy. And I suppose then on the, the, the counter side to that, there would have been two cases uh, that I took. One was relating to the expenses of Oroctus members, where basically... I looked for every every year, a certain number of TDs and senators, around 10%, they get audited by an outside accountancy firm to make sure that all their um, expenses are in order. And when the Oroctus came up with this system, it all came in after the resignation of the Keon Corla back in 2009, 2009. And there was a whole load of expenses, controversies that effectively led to this kind of total rethink of how expenses would be claimed by TDs and senators. And the whole impetus behind the new system was what causes controversy is receipts and invoices. It's not big numbers. So the new system was developed to put the receipts and invoices beyond FOI, basically. But I kind of spotted that actually there was this little gap because while the TDs and senators kept their invoices and receipts, which meant they weren't FOIable, when they got audited, they had to give the invoices and receipts to this accountancy firm. And it was kind of a loophole in a sense, but that meant that they became FOI records because they were now held by a service provider doing a job on behalf of the Oroctus. So I thought, I'm going to win this case. Because at first, the Oroctus said, these aren't subject to FOI, you can't access them. And then they eventually admitted, actually, they 
are accessible under FY, but now we've come up with a new thing. You just can't have them. And they use something called private papers. And there's a, an element of the FOI Act around the private papers of a TD and a senator to protect their interaction with constituents mm. in the first instance so that they can have private correspondence, you know, in their role as a, as a member of the Oireachtas. And really importantly, it was to protect their interaction with whistleblowers. And the motivation behind it was many years ago, um, during the controversy over Garda corruption in Donegal, there was a serious question mark over whether two TDs would have to disclose information relating to their dealings with whistleblowers. And so this private papers thing came along to make sure they were protected. And so what the Oireachtas did said, well, actually, these invoices and receipts, they're private papers too. And the information commissioner agreed with it. And the one thing it showed me was that I, I was kind of, I am naive about the law. So the, the only part of the law that journalists know about generally is uh, defamation <laughs> and contempt of court. And then over time, I developed knowledge of a third part of the law, which was FOI. But what I never figured out until that point was that the law is, when it comes down to it, the law, a lot of the time, is what the state wants it to be. It's not actually what it says on the paper. It's what the, the state decides it means. And in that case, they took this incredibly tenuous angle to protect something that doesn't need protection. There's literally no reason to protect it except to avoid um, kind of embarrassment and controversy. And they m openly misused something that was designed to protect whistleblowers to hide um, invoices and receipts from expenses. And yeah, that, so that was, the, that was the biggest lesson I ever learned in FY that actually sometimes the law really is something that's very malleable mm. and it can be formed according to the needs of the state at a particular time. Yeah, it's all about the interpretation of it. And of course, to make that point, you need then to appeal to one of the courts and get their interpretation. And of course, as you say, that is just so wildly expensive. Exactly. And we had, to, we had to drop that case because we, we, we don't have the deep pockets that it would require to have fought it. Whether we would have won... In the high court or not, I suppose is is a, is another question. Maybe we wouldn't, but it it, it was it was a it was a lesson, and mm. I just realised that actually sometimes you can be right and still lose and <laughs> still not win exactly. Yeah. And just I suppose on a, a final point, and probably related to to that experience, what proposals if you were going to you know advise the drafters of the next iteration of FOI legislation, what proposals would you have to improve it um i like the to me the biggest the biggest disconnect is is there's is the absence of a person to promote use of foi and to promote good decision making because there's a the biggest problems foi has is that politicians when they're in opposition love foi politicians when they're in government hate foi so Automatically, that means the government, as in the, the, the present day government and the various departments, and in this case, it's the Department of Public Expenditure, 
they don't have the same feelings about FOI that, that journalists or citizens do. The transparency is not necessarily their goal when it comes to FOI. But it's, it kind of runs counter to, to some of their own interests. Civil servants generally don't really like FOI because they find it time consuming and they feel it takes away from their other work. And one of the biggest things that we've never kind of come to terms with is that FOI for a civil servant is not other work. FOI is core. FOI is one of the most important things any civil servant does, because this is you reporting to the public on what you're doing with their money on a day-to-day basis. So that, that, that has to change. How you change that culture, I don't really know. But it's the absence of a kind of a, a champion of FOI to me is, 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 is the biggest issue. And when the information commissioner takes this very distanced kind of neutral um, role, you ju- you're just left with this situation where there is no pressure on public bodies to do better apart from what comes from, say, Right to Know and, and journalists. And, you know, we're a tiny organisation. We're just not we're just not strong enough to to really to to really push it the way it needs to be pushed so uh, so uh, something has something better has to fill that something the either the information commission has to be certainly needs more powers definitely needs more resources and some mechanism needs to be created to really to empower citizens to access information to force decision makers to do their jobs properly to encourage public bodies to make much more information available automatically than they do, and also a, a system of, of repercussions so that if a public body is performing really, really badly, that um, their secretary general ends up before a committee in the Oireachtas and ends up being a bit embarrassed at the very least. Um, so, but it's just, as I said, it to me, the, the worst part of it is, is that there's actually an incentive to do your job badly, um, kind of a, in that perverse way that if you never give out information and you just are a disaster, people will just stop making requests. So you actually get exactly what you want. You cut your workload um, by being really bad and that there's nobody coming saying, well, hang on a second. It's not good enough. You have to it's not good enough. We're gonna we're gonna monitor your work for the next year and make sure you do it properly. And if you don't do it properly, well, you know, there's gonna be there's gonna be repercussions, fines, whatever it is, demotions, sanctions, disciplinary. You know, I'm not talking about people getting fired or anything like that, but I'm talking about people have a basic expectation that people will do their jobs, as I said, with public funds on behalf of the public. And I think that's a really core point that if there was any other aspect of the work that wasn't being done effectively or properly and was creating the the same kind of confusion or the same kind of bad processing, there would be disciplinary. There, you know, there would be consequences. Again, probably wouldn't be firing, but no one's looking for that. But there would certainly be reviews, performance reviews. As opposed to, as you say, a, a kind of a perverse reward for for doing your job ineffectively. 
Um, and again, I, another thing that kind of really struck me when you're talking about, you know, somebody being a champion for for FOI. When in, in 2018, the new GDPR legislation was kicking in, there was an entire campaign for a year beforehand, if not even a bit more, talking about it, preparing people for it, preparing organizations for it. There was an industry created around pre- preparing um, businesses for it. And yet nothing on the other side with FOI, that that kind of public awareness campaign just wasn't there. It's not, there's no impetus to do it. And I suppose if you even look, um, and I know that the Data Protection Commission gets an awful lot of criticism and arguably has an impossible job with the remit that they have is probably too vast for any um, public body to take on. But at the very least, the Data Protection Commission is out there saying, we're under-resourced. We need more people. I hear Helen Dixon on the radio or in interviews every four or five weeks talking about, you know, defending her office, talking about GDPR, talking about the resources that they need. And yet I've never heard the Information Commissioner actively say, very openly say, we're, we're, we're not sufficiently resourced. Like I sent them an email yesterday about a request for review that I had um, made. And I made the request, it was in March 2020. And we're two years down the line now and there's no decision. And so why is the, if, if they can't, if they can't fulfill their function, they say six months is, is, the, is the goal so, and some of these cases, if your case is taking you two years and no proper explanation has ever been provided for it, why aren't they out there jumping up and down saying, we need more people? We can't get through the work. We we know that they can't. Um, I don't understand why they haven't made that case. I think one of the one of the issues as well is that the complexity of what they're dealing with has grown very, very significantly. And the information commissioner also is the ombudsman, also is looking for other roles around, has a role around direct provision now, and is looking for other roles. And that to me seems absolutely crazy. They're looking for other roles at a time when some of the the roles that they're supposed to be doing aren't being done effectively. Um, And uh, definitely part of this discussion for the new FOI Act should be whether those roles need to be separated out. Is it too much to ask one person? And as the other, the other part, the other thing that I think would be really, really helpful would be that there would be a, an Oroctus committee of some description that would be set up that specialises in in FOI, uh, GDPR, access to information on the environment, reuse of public sector information, and so on. Because I just think that it's one of those things that the FOI Act of 1998 the the system of government that it came in to deal with it's it's so different now you know we we see that in the controversy over for instance retention of text messages you know things like that the use of whatsapp or slack or messenger or whatever it might happen to be none of those things even existed um, when the FOI Act came in. So the complexity is, is absolutely massively changed. And yet we're asking, maybe we're, maybe we're just asking too much of one person. Thank you. Uh, with that, I will end our, our chat. Thanks a million. I found that absolutely fascinating and I'm certainly sure our our listeners will. Um, I will be linking your, um, your website 
your Ken Fox website and your Right to Know website uh, to this podcast so that people can access all of that information. So thank you so, so much. Thanks very much for asking me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that and found it interesting and informative. I know I certainly did. Ken's website, righttoknow.ie, is an absolute wealth of information on transparency and particularly transparency around Irish government. I'd recommend that you check it out. That's righttoknow.ie. And of course, as always, if you have any comments or any questions or anything you'd like to see in future episodes of this podcast, please do get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.